I grew up in a very devout black missionary Baptist home. Church was always a very important part of my life. I was in church from about 10 every Sunday morning to one every Sunday afternoon. And we'd be in church on Wednesday night for Bible study and on Thursday nights for choir rehearsal. Church was just as much a part of my life as eating Frosted Flakes was every day. That was the voice of the Reverend Broderick Greer. Coming up next here on the podcast, Profane Faith. That America is a place where all things are possible. That is some group of people, thousands. This I hate you, naturally. No, no, no. Not God bless America. God damn America. That's in the Bible. Welcome to Profane Faith, a podcast that engages faith on the margins. Faith that has been labeled profane, nonconformist, and or out there. We'll be exploring the intersections of the sacred, secular, and profane to find God. I'm your host, Daniel White Hodge. Welcome back. Welcome back to Profane Faith, a podcast here looking at elements of faith, theology, religion. I'm your host, Daniel White Hodge. If you haven't had a chance to listen to episode 00 to kind of get a gist of what this podcast is about, I highly recommend you doing that. And if you haven't already liked or subscribed to us on iTunes or wherever you find your podcast at, I would ask that you do that and rate us and pass around your this uh, podcast to, to your friends if you're enjoying it. That uh, that always helps out, uh, especially helps a brother out. You know what I'm saying? Um, today, I am really excited to have a guest of mine here on the show Reverend Broderick Greer, who's a graduate, a 2015 graduate of Virginia Theological Seminary. Reverend Broderick Greer is the curate at Grace St. Luke's Episcopal Church and School out in Memphis, Tennessee. At Grace St. Luke's, Broderick coordinates ministry to people in their 20s and 30s, preaches and leads worship, oversees the parochial school chapel, and directs City of Soul, an Episcopal Service Corps Young and Adult Service Year program. This brother is the joint. For those of you who don't know who Reverend Greer is, I'm just going to point you to his Twitter account in the land of Twitter. He is an amazing brother. I first ran into him. Oh, well, he tells me, and I am so embarrassed in this interview, you'll hear that we first ran into each other uh, at a conference a few years back. And I am so bummed I did not just embrace that moment. I think there were just so many people going on and what was happening in, and I just didn't, it didn't click. That's sometimes that's what happens, right? When you just get bombarded by a bunch of folks. Um, and I just started seeing this brother show up on Twitter and wow he's just he's just amazing i mean he's just amazing at how he intersects his own life his own understanding of God, his theology, um, his own sexual orientation, his understanding of that theologically. This brother is all that, all that. And as they used to say in the 80s, in a bag of chips, you know what I'm saying? So I uh, invite you to sit back uh, and enjoy this Really good conversation that I had with Reverend Greer. We're hoping that uh, this will not be the last. We know it won't be the last here on Profane Faith to have him on. So without any further ado, Reverend Broderick Greer. Well, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for taking time. I know you are a busy, busy man. And thank you for taking time to come on my show. Who is not busy? Everybody's busy. <laughs> yeah. People who say they're busy think they're special and they're not. Yeah. Yeah, that's for sure. Um, well, I I have followed you on Twitter. I don't think we've ever necessarily even met in in real life, face to face. We did. I think we did actually. And oh. you wouldn't remember this, but I remember it at the uh, Progressive Youth Ministers Conference. Oh, I think in Chicago. Yes, yes, I do remember. I that. remember meeting you, but I know like you're you're important. <laughs> Yeah, all right. So brother. that's that's why I remember. <laughs> that's that's what you man. That's what's up, brother. Oh man, you know and the thing about it is I'm so I'm so always so bad with names, faces I can remember. But that's what's up, man. I'm 
Man, I I, I should have relished that uh, that meeting much more, man. I, that's taking this in, this brother right here. Um, no, I, stop. No, no, man. I've I've appreciated your direct theological inquiry, and I have appreciated just how you take on really white supremacy. Um, I, I don't know if you want to share a little bit on just um, on just your take. I mean, you're definitely active on social media, particularly Twitter. I know you one tweet you said, um, this is me on Facebook. You know, here's my cat. And then here's on Twitter. We must end colonialization and white supremacy. So uh, I don't know if you, I mean, do you, how do you, def- do, you do you break down between how you share or is Twitter like your main thing? Yeah, absolutely. Um, Twitter is definitely my favorite social media platform. It's intuitive. It makes sense. It's easy. Um, You have kind of direct contact with people. Um, And I honestly don't really understand Facebook (laughs) and how it works. And I think, you know, Twitter is really great. And there have been studies on this and research done on the fact that since Twitter doesn't have an algorithm mm-hmm. or it does have an algorithm, but you can opt out of the algorithm. Mm-hmm. It is much easier to access voices of color and queer people of color. Okay. Um, and so even though we make up kind of a small proportion of people on Twitter, we have kind of an outsized presence because um, the platform is conducive to the way we communicate um yeah it's great i love twitter yeah no absolutely and so just to back up for particularly for some of the folks in and for those of you listening i'll put as as much information as i can in the show notes on on the website but what got you into this what inspired you what uh as 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 a lot of folks say you know what was there a woke moment or did you did you come out the womb woke i'm seeing some of them pictures of your family and stuff it looks like the greers are are are, are about about it (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> my parents i i do not like the word woke i do not identify as woke. all right come on but my 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 parents um you know they grew up working class black people in fort worth texas mm-hmm. they are um kind of first generation middle class because of the jobs that they have and that's how i grew up um and we grew up in a I grew up in a really racially mixed neighborhood, but my parents were very, very intentional as were their parents about, you know, letting us know you are black. This is what your life will look like. This is what's Hmm. going to happen to you. Hmm. These are the people you're going to run into. This is what people are going to say about you. Hmm. Um, This is what people are going to try to do. And they said that from an early age. Wow. And, I didn't want to believe them and I didn't believe them for a really long time because I had, you know, friends of different races growing up. They were, they were nice. Their parents were nice. I just couldn't imagine that any of the people that I knew and loved could be capable of such evil. I mean, cause really what my parents were describing was evil. Hmm. Um, yeah. And it was, I was 17 and a senior in high school. Mm -hmm. And I saw this story on our local news about, um, a black couple in a town over from us and how a neighbor, a white neighbor Mm -hmm. had written the N word Mm -hmm. on their, um, on the garage of their house. Wow. And they were calling for people to come and march with the local NAACP and local black pastors. And so I went over there And I saw someone holding a sign that said, um, injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere, which Mm -hmm. some people probably grew up with that King quote. Yeah. I, I did not, I had never noticed it until that moment. Okay. And it really got me to think, I mean, just, it was really transformative to begin thinking at 17, oh my goodness, this injustice really like threatens the equilibrium of justice for everyone. Right. Um, and so that kind of planted the seed. I would not say that I was kind of like a full blown activist or a full blown, um, social justice thinker at that point, Mm -hmm. but I ended up getting a bachelor's in social work. Wow. Okay. Which was really my, 
my social justice education, beginning to think of social justice um, structurally and and injustice structurally and racism structurally um, instead of kind of um, interpersonally. Okay. And and that was my critical education into that. And then, of course, I went to seminary at Virginia Seminary in 2012. Okay. And in 2014, when I was a senior in seminary, uh, there's a theme here. It seems like <laughs> there's always something happening my senior year in, <laughs> in school. Um, Michael Brown was killed in, Ver- in Ferguson. Yeah. And I went to Ferguson two weeks later with a group from D.C. Mm. And we registered people to vote and we you know, just talk to people on the ground and offered encouragement to them. And there was a woman there, a black mother, and she had her children with her. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, was just talking to her and she said, I said, well, how long do you, how long do you plan on being out here? Yeah. And she said, I plan on being out here until justice is done. I mean, people had stopped going to work. People, um, you know, they had postponed the beginning of school because of the unrest. Mm-hmm. And that really, I mean, that has stayed with me three years later that um, this woman was so committed to seeing justice done that she put her life on hold. Um, yeah, yeah. For, you know, for the common good. And just this commitment to black people, to black liberation, to black empowerment um, has stayed with me ever since. So I wouldn't say it was ever a moment. I would say it's been a string of moments, okay, a string of relationships, a string of books, a string of conversations um, that inform who I am and how I operate in the world today. Man, that's what's up. That's what's up. I mean, I know. You know, there's there's different folks. I was you know having a conversation with uh, Brandy Miller, um, and you know haven't had a chance to uh, do a podcast interview with her. And she was talking about how, you know, in the 08 election, you know, she she said, you know, she considers herself she wasn't woke. She voted for um, McCain and was like, you know, oh, wow. Republican and like, you know, she openly shares it. So I'm not speaking on her business or anything like that. But she was like, you know, that was a moment. Yeah. And and a lot of people point back to Mike Brown, um, you know, that Ferguson was like an awakening, almost like ground zero for a lot of different things. Um, so no, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So just real quick, because I definitely want to hop into the, the stuff that's happening currently with Virginia. But I but I'd love particularly just how you theologically approach the Bible um, hmm. and some of my. Some of my humanist friends that I hang out with, you know, I, it was some of the criticism I get pushed back on is like, man, how can you how can you be a Christian knowing all the colonization, all the racism that it has done? You know, what I posted something on Facebook and then somebody uh, one of my one of my colleagues responded and was just like, you know, it was something on black blackness and Christianity. And it was just like the reason the, the problem with Christianity is that it has no blackness in it. It's all white. And so. How do you go about just engaging with that particular argument? And how do you go about mm. what's your theological lens? Mm. <laughs> I think what is not my theological lens? <laughs> yeah. um, I mean, I think, well, in Anglicanism, and I'm an Episcopal priest, and so we are a part of the, the global Anglican communion. And the Anglican approach to theology is scripture it's a people call it a three-legged stool okay scripture tradition and reason so the bible in its forms and you know kind of accurately translated tradition how has the church seen this throughout history and then reason um so how do we how do we bring our critical thinking skills our brain our intellect to complex theological issues. Mm -hmm. And then um, Wesleyans would say, and I agree with them, it's a, it's called the Wesleyans, the Wesleyan quadrilateral. Okay. Quadrilateral. Scripture, tradition, reason, and human experience. Mm. So human human experience informed by the Holy Spirit. So how do relationships and human faces, the faces of, of people, 
inform how we approach theology. So I think that's kind of my broad kind of classical theological framework. Yeah, yeah. Um, But I I always tell people my first seminary professor was my mom. Mm. Um, Wow. You know, who I'm very close to, took us to church every Sunday. She sang in the choir. She directed the women's ministry in her black Baptist church. And her approach to faith was very, very practical. It was, it's something that she holds on to in, in times of intense suffering and struggle. Mm-hmm. And it's also something that she gives away when people are going through the same thing. So I think about one Easter weekend growing up, there was a family in our church that was less fortunate than us. And she had the four sons come over to our church that weekend and she gave them all, she gave all of them suits mm. and made sure, you know, that they were showered and all of this for Easter Sunday morning. Mm. Wow. Uh, because in our church, you know, people bought new clothes for Easter and it was a huge celebration. And so yeah. she wanted to make sure that they had the dignity of a new suit for Easter. And that is the kind of faith that I saw modeled for me and that was taught to me from a very early age. My mom did not do that for attention. She would cringe if she knew that I shared that story. Oh. Um, but kind of this, this quiet commitment to dignity for other people wow. and for herself. Wow. And so um, the experiences of black women, of uh, queer people of color like myself, um, to people who are who are constantly asserting their humanity mm-hmm. when um, forces of evil um, and you know political forces, um, ecclesial forces are saying you are not human, you don't deserve to live, you don't deserve to flourish. Yeah, and people say, actually, I do. Um, and that is, you know, that that kind of cross pollination is is really what informs how I understand theology. Wow. And I gave a talk last year um, based on a line from an interview with theologian James Allison. And basically the interviewer asked him, you know, you did theology as an academic, you know, wasn't that so luxurious? And Father Allison said, for me, theology has never been a matter of luxury. It's always been a matter of survival. Mm, whoa. And so how did he, as a, a gay Catholic priest, mm-hmm. do theology as a form of survival? I know for me, theology as survival has been imagining myself into the story of God. Because mm. for me, there was never room for me. There was never... I never saw myself in the biblical text. There was never, that just wasn't in my imagination. Yeah, yeah. And so survive, you know, doing theology as survival has been saying, I, you know, if it takes everything in me, I'm going to put myself in this story. Like I'm going to force myself into this story. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm going to force, I'm going to place a, a chair at the table. Um, since a chair wasn't put there for me, since since somehow, you know, <laughs> people weren't prepared for me to be here, I'll prepare a place for myself. Um, and so kind of forcing ourselves into the rooms and to the places and to the imaginations that we weren't supposed to be in the first place. Wow. And how this relates yeah. to kind of Christianity in the West. And, you know, I think I'm increasingly getting this question of how do you, you know, how are you a priest? How do you, how are you Christian? And people ask me that because I think they think I have a great answer for that. <laughs> I don't have a great answer for it. Okay. Um, but I think about my ancestors and Ruby Sells talks about this a lot. Mm. I think about how they repurposed mm-hmm. a religion used to oppress them. They repurposed it as a religion for their liberation. Wow. wow. And that's that's all I can say is that I wasn't the first to do this. I was not the first 
black person to be a Christian. I was not the first black person to be baptized. I was not the first black person to be ordained. People have done this for centuries and they've made do with it. They've, they've made something beautiful from it. Hmm. Um, you know, getting my kind of post-colonial education, um, throughout seminary, I would go back home and go to my grandmother's church and I would hear her, her kind of exclamation in church was always, thank you, master. And I'm thinking, oh my God, you know, why is my grandmother using this kind of white heteropatriarchal <laughs> language for God? Right, right, right. And I was at a, at a gathering and Ruby Sells said, you know, when black people refer to God as Lord or as master, historically, mm-hmm. They meant that that white men were not the master. So it was mm. it was really actually a subversive title for God. That what they were saying was enslavement does not have the final word. Jim Crow does not have the final word. Segregation does not have the final word. The degradation of black life in the US does not have the final word. Ultimately, God has the final word wow. over black life. Mm. And so my grandmother, in her own liturgical language, was making space to say, ultimately, white men are not my master. Mm. Um, God is my master. Love is my master. This, this God of love who has watched over me and protected me and sheltered me is the one who has the final word over my life. Wow. So that that's how I remain Christian. Mm. Um, that's how I remain um, in the church. That's, wow, that's deep. That is deep. Um, and now moving to the present, and, and and for those of you listening, I mean, like I, I shared with Broderick, I, I I had other questions planned, but then this whole madness happened here this, this weekend here in August 2017. Uh, in Virginia, um, uh, one of your tweets uh, was, uh, "Dear Christians, don't be so heavenly minded that you are no earthly good." Uh, and and looking at just the face of racism, I think for us as blacks, I mean, I don't think this is anything new. Um, but what were your initial takes just as you saw this popping up both on your timeline and just on? Uh, just the feed and just the news as, as you think about just the, the white supremacist marching, uh, the ensuing uh, violence, and of course all the narratives that have spun out, and of, and, and of course the ensuing death, too, of, of this young woman. Exactly. I mean, I think and, and you know, I'm around priests all the time. I'm around ministers all the time. Um, I'm around people who preach all the time and write a lot. And I think I've gotten to a point where I'm really over this whole panic about, oh, I have to rewrite my sermon on Saturday night because, (laughs) you know, this tragedy happened, which is fine. Um, And that's a legitimate thing to panic about in many ways. But what I notice over and over again is people really only panic about stuff like that when it relates to race. Okay. And so my thinking about that is if you, if you were, you know, if you're a pastor and you have a kind of a weekly platform or biweekly platform or monthly platform with people of faith, and you're not really doing any educating around race and white supremacy, white nationalism, the rise of Trump. Um, the connection between white nationalist, white nationalism and um, white Western Christian theology. Of course, you're going to panic because, like, you're not you're not in the practice hmm. of discussing this. Hmm. Yeah, and so you're going to be brought up short on on days like yesterday, Sunday, August thirteenth, um, because you. I mean, so many people contact me, Broderick, I don't have words. Well, I mean, I'm sorry you don't, (laughs) but you've had time. I mean, it's not like this is something new. It's not like um, there weren't two previous 
uh, white supremacist rallies in Charlottesville this summer <laughs> alone. Right, right. Um, this is not new. Um, you know, just because it's new to you doesn't mean it's new. And so I think what I'm noticing after kind of observing this for a few years and through a few uh, lectionary cycles is, and, you know, because I'm an Episcopal priest, I preach on the lectionary cycle, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. the three-year the three year revised common lectionary cycle. And so what I've noticed is, you know, people panic Saturday night getting ready for Sunday because they haven't really done any work. <laughs> um, you know, just like I'll panic when I realize how much I owe in taxes if I haven't been paying quarterly. Yeah. Um, and if you pay quarterly, that takes the pressure off on April 15th. Um, <laughs> if you're preaching and teaching on all of this stuff regularly. That's a good analogy. <laughs> um, that takes the pressure off on August 13th. Um, you don't feel as panicked. You don't feel as, you know, though there's so much pressure. Um you can be at ease in the pulpit and at the altar when you're not kind of fiddling your thumbs the rest of the week or fiddling your thumbs the rest of the year or the rest of the century or the rest of the decade. Um, And so I think what we have to, I mean, and you notice, I mean, summer, and I, I think it's just this human thing, especially in the U S I mean, People are hot. People are irritated. <laughs> right. right. Um, people are outside in ways that they aren't in other seasons of the year. Mm-hmm. You know, you notice the unrest that that occurred in Ferguson in the summer. You notice the unrest that occurred in Baltimore kind of in, you know, mid spring of 2015. Um, and you notice the unrest of these white supremacists and them just being outside in the streets right. of our cities. Right, right. And and it, it makes one think about the fact that, and, and, and it really makes me think specifically about um, Pastor Dwight McKissick. So okay. he's pastor of Cornerstone Baptist Church, which is a large black Baptist church in Arlington. But what sets it apart is that it's a Southern Baptist church. Hmm. And there are not many black Southern Baptists for many reasons. But Dwight McKissick, his church is duly aligned, Southern Baptist Convention and National Baptist Convention. I grew up in the National Baptist Convention, which is a historically black Baptist denomination. But he is committed to the Southern Baptist Convention, and he was at their convention gathering this summer, and he submitted a resolution condemning the alt-right and the theology of the curse mm, yeah. of Ham. Yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. And the resolution committee um, said, this language is too inflammatory. The resolution <laughs> went to the floor. The resolution failed. And after a huge kind of public outcry over this resolution failing, literally a resolution condemning the alt-right, condemning white supremacists, condemning, I mean, just condemning racism. Hmm. And it failed. And after public outrage, the resolution finally passed the next day. That was this summer. Yeah. Yes. Yes. I mean, that was like last <laughs> month. I mean, this is not I mean, he's literally yes. speaking to his denomination. And of course, Pastor. I mean, I grew up in the shadow of Pastor McKissick's church in Texas. You know, if you were black and affluent and lived in Fort Worth, mm-hmm. you didn't go to a black Baptist church in Fort Worth. You went to Pastor McKissick's affluent black suburban church. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'm familiar with his work and I'm familiar with many people who go to his church. But you think this black pastor in this predominantly white denomination who has his pulse on all of this kind of white supremacy, white nationalism, neo-Nazism, mm-hmm. he's literally asking his denomination to affirm his humanity. And they say, that's too inflammatory. <laughs> that's too inflammatory. And then a month and a half later, white supremacists, white nationalists, neo-Nazis are marching 
in Charlottesville, Virginia, one of them murders a counter protester by running over her in a car using weaponizing a car, a vehicle. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And you think, oh, my goodness, these people aren't are they are not listening to us. They won't listen. Right. Right. Um, I mean, you think about all of the speeches given last year saying, you know, Donald Trump is sympathetic to white supremacy. He is sympathetic to white nationalists. He has neo-Nazis serving in his administration. You know, if he becomes president, he'll have neo-Nazis serving in his administration, da-da-da-da-da. And one would almost think that people heard that and they just got excited about it. Right. And they were like, actually, this is a great idea. We want white supremacists in our in the White House. We want white nationalists to be emboldened and start and basically see black people um, as open targets. Um, right. I know I know I'm rambling at this point, no, but I think that no, 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 it's really, really important that even though that resolution passed at the Southern Baptist Convention this summer, mm-hmm. it's important to know that the resolution committee had the the peace and the passage condemning the theology of the curse of Ham taken out of the final resolution. <laughs> so Pastor McKissick understood the connections mm-hmm. between the current political moment and its theological origins. Mm. And his convention was unwilling to acknowledge the connections. Wow. Now, this is a convention that 20 years ago mm-hmm. apologized for its relationship to the Civil War, for its relationship to the institution oh, of enslavement. That's right. 20 I'm, years yes, ago. Yeah I'm, I'm, yeah, I remember that. I remember that. Yes. Now, around the same time, they passed a resolution saying that wives must submit to their husbands. <laughs> but they still at that, you know, around that same time were very apologetic about, at least in word, about their um, participation in enslavement in our country. So it makes one think, you know, are people kind of in predominantly white spaces, predominantly white denominations, predominantly white communities, are they just so resistant Mm -hmm. to seeing how racism not only permeates their schools, their churches, their relationships, their marriages, their jobs, um, but even down to the way that they think theologically, Mm. Mm -hmm. to the point that when they're asked to condemn the theology of the curse of Ham, which has been disproven and picked apart for decades. (laughs) Right, right. That they say, oh, that's that's a that's a bit too far. Wow. That's a bit too far. And, you know, no denomination is perfect. I am a part of a denomination that's 89 percent white. Hmm. Um, Basically, anything that can be said about a white evangelical denomination can be said about a white mainline denomination. Um, But I think Mm. because the Southern Baptist Convention is the largest Protestant denomination in the U.S., Mm -hmm. they just get a lot of attention. And it's important to watch them. It's important to watch how they vote, how they think, um, what they keep in a resolution, what they take out. Um, Absolutely. Because in many ways, it's a bellwether for so many other Christians outside of their denomination. Yes. Yeah. No, absolutely. Absolutely. My good friend, and uh, she's a reverend. She just got her doctorate from uh, Chicago Theological Seminary, Veil to Love. Um, she, uh, I had her come and, and speak in uh, one of my uh, demon classes that I teach. And, and she said, I just, I love this quote. She said that, you know, for African-American, for black theology, for black Christian theology, that you have to go back to Africa to really 500, 600 AD to really begin to understand what Christian theology looks like from an Afrocentric hermeneutic because she said if you start during slavery it's 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 already it's it, in the enslavement period she said it's already colonized it's already you know you know with this this theological this racism in the theological dna um it 
Yeah, I just I'm, I'm just I'm just always uh, I'm just always it, it, when I look at that I, I think about that because there I mean and I'm not even talking necessarily about white churches. I mean I I, I would think even just the engagement. Um, with some of these issues with black churches, I'm thinking about the ones particularly or some of the pastors, the African-American pastors who voted for Trump, who will still stand up and, you know, defend him. Um, exactly. Well, and I, I think about. Um, I mean, and this just kind of shows the. The way that theolo- Western theology has been so colonized by whiteness, hmm. the fact that, you know, St. Augustine. Well, number one, you have all of these kind of what we would call church fathers or patristic writers in the early period of Christianity. None of them were white. I mean, this is before people are thinking in racial terms. But (laughs) now we think of them as white. Um, But you think about the Cappadocian fathers and mothers who were writing in Asia Minor. Mm -hmm. So modern day Turkey. Um, you think about St. Augustine, who was writing in North Africa. This is a North African bishop and theologian. Mm. His mother is an African woman, an African mother, uh, St. Monica, which is why so many Roman Cat- black Roman Catholic parishes in the U.S. are called St. Monica. Um, and we have to really try to start thinking of these people Western theologians and Eastern theologians alike in the patristic period, we have to really think about them in their original context. Mm. But these are kind of, um, how, do, how would you say this? Afro-Asiatic type people. Mm-hmm. I mean, these, are not, these are not white people. They are not thinking like white Western Europeans post-Reformation or even post kind of 1,000, 1,200, 1,400. They're not... These are not white people. These are uh, people who are close to the land, people who are predisposed to poetry Mm -hmm. and poetic language and metaphor and storytelling. Um, And and we have to, to think about them in their original context and really shirk from the idea that whiteness is the norm in the experience of God mm. and that whiteness is is the norm in the way that we refer to and talk about God. Wow. Um, I mean, you think about the Ethiopian, Ethiopian Orthodox Church. Um, really, Ethiopia was never really colonized. Mm-hmm. And thus the Ethiopian Orthodox Church was never colonized. So you have this African form of Christianity that's deeply, deeply African, deeply, deeply Christian, um, and is unapologetic about both in its own way. Mm. Um, you know, I have a, a very cl- a good friend of mine. I don't know if she would say that she's a good friend of mine, but I'm, I consider her a good friend of mine. Um who is a priest in the Episcopal Church, and her family has been priests in the Martoma Church, mm. which is an Indian Orthodox Church, okay. for a thousand years. Ooh, thousand years? Dang. You know what I'm saying? So this is, wow. this is like pre-colonization. These are people who have been practicing Christianity without the white gaze, mm-hmm. 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 without you know white Western European colonization. And, you know, I, I hear white evangelicals and white post-evangelicals say things like, um, well, we need to start listening to, to voices of color because they are the future of the church. <laughs> You're right. Yes. And you think, Mm-mm, no, we're not the future of the church. We are the church now. We've been the church since before you were. Mm. Um, and we'll be the church after you're gone. Um, we were the church before you were white. <laughs> <laughs> and I think it's good to remind them of that, that wow. um, there are black people, you know, and I understand what Dr. Love is saying. Um, that colonialism is some sort of irreversible, uh, tainting kind of um, influence. I think mm-hmm. that 
we have to have a healthy understanding of what colonialism is and colonization is, especially when it comes to theology. Yeah. Um, so I'm not really interested necessarily. I mean, this is not my area of interest is kind of recovering kind of a pre-colonial Christianity. Okay. Um, the Christianity I've inherited is colonial. and I mean, it's pre-colonial, colonial, and post-colonial. Um, and it has a lot of baggage. Um, and I'm not going to pretend like it doesn't. Um, not to say that people are pretending that it isn't, but I think, you know, what I've inherited um, in the Episcopal Church, in the Black Baptist tradition, um, in the white evangelicalism of my teenage years, is deeply informed by colonialism and colonization mm-hmm. um, and enslavement and um, white dominant narratives. And that it, it is what it is. Um and so how do we make the best of that? How do we repurpose it and retrofit it for liberation? And how do we look to the ways it's liberated people um, even before we were thought of? Wow. Man, I'm, that's deep. <laughs> There's a lot there, brother. That's, um, well, I'm, and I'm wondering, I mean, going back to, I know um, you've, you've tweeted about James Cone and one of the hashtags you used was, you know, James Cone was right. Um, and one of the things I've been processing and looking at, particularly in light of just the violence, I mean, just taking this one weekend and just looking at the violence, I mean, this, you know, the violence in this country goes, goes back many centuries. Um, but I'm wondering, what does or does a theology of violence set in for people of color and and i say that what got me challenged i i I was in ferguson last year i took a group of students as part of a class and one of the activists we were reading with like folks who were like you know in the community from the community and they were you know the first thing out of his mouth was nonviolence is a position for the privileged um and it just got me thinking because you know and, and all of my students were like oh peace and and nonviolence is, is is the way but he was just right off the bat and this and this brother he he was you know he had a, an open carry permit he had a body cam on he had his, his his glock nine right next to him and he was just like oh yeah I, sh- I don't go anywhere without this he said because nonviolence is is from a privileged position i'm just wondering how how do you engage with that what do you what do you look at in in terms of that i mean and moving forward and thinking about you know the future 20 years from now i mean do is it a armed revolt is it do we return is it a second civil war i mean is this what 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 is this in your in your in your opinion in your in because you're very well read i mean so what what do you think this 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 looks like moving forward well i always revisit gotta be oppressed by james cone mm-hmm. um and of course you know I don't think that James Cone is the end-all, be-all sure. um, of black theology. Mm-hmm. I think he's important. I think he must definitely be read in conversation with Emily Towns, mm-hmm. Dolores Williams, um, Will Gaffney, who is doing amazing work yeah. on womanism in the Hebrew Bible, oh, Renita yeah. Weems, um, so many people, so many people, so many black women. Um, but one thing that he says in God of the Oppressed Uh, And I just keep this quote kind of on my phone at all times. um, Is we cannot let white white rhetoric about nonviolence and Jesus distort our vision of violence committed against black people. Mm. And he talks about Mm. how the oppressed have been victims of mental and physical dehumanization. And how black people must resist ideas from white people about what it looks like to not be dehumanized and what it looks like to practice nonviolence. Because the culture that they've created and are a part of and participate in is so deeply um, dehumanizing and violent that they cannot even see clearly about what nonviolence might look like. Mm. And this isn't because they're bad people. It's just because when you benefit from and participate in a culture and a country 
and, and civilization that has bases in every corner of the world. Right, right. Milit- military and political interests in every corner of the world. Uh, territories as far flung as Guam, political influences as far flung as South Korea and Israel. Um, you've toppled uh, and displaced Latin American democratically elected governments for your own political and imperial interests. Mm. And that's that that enables you to like be able to go to Whole Foods and be able to go to Trader Joe's and take great vacations wow. and do all of this. That that's their understanding. They they would not understand all of that as kind of violent. Wow. And yet much of the time they're the ones writing books about pacifism and nonviolence and being an Anabaptist. You know, you have all of these people who are calling themselves high church Anabaptists because that's what Stanley Harawas calls himself. Mm, yeah, um, yeah. And we cannot approach nonviolence from their lens because they, they fundamentally don't have the capability of being nonviolent. Hmm. I don't know exactly what the way forward is i'm i'm <laughs> deeply deeply confused about all of that right now yeah. and i'm really having to do a lot of introspection because since about age 14 i have considered myself a pacifist mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and committed to nonviolence um i think for a time i even had a conscientious objector card so that you know if there was a draft i wouldn't go into the military yeah yeah. Um, but I think we almost have to think outside of that framework altogether. Mm. Um, that violence is definitely not productive um, or generative. Mm-hmm. But we must be realistic about the only, the, the fact that the only reason that black people are relatively free today is because of the Civil War. Yeah. If a war had not been fought, black people would still be enslaved. Wow. And I, I mean, I, there, for me, there's really no way around that. I don't know what the, non, the quote, nonviolent solution to enslavement would have been. Yeah. Because they certainly weren't going to let us walk off of their labor camps, their plantations, um, nonviolently. Um, And they had a very intricate system of security on those labor camps um, to keep us from from freeing ourselves. And so it it took guns in order for us to be free. Mm -hmm. And Ta-Nehisi Coates, I really appreciate his perspective on that, that that it's usually only through violence Mm -hmm. that black people are able to attain relative amounts of freedom. Wow. Um, I don't know. I, I think in that in that realm, there's so much to be explored. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I was really brought around to this when um, the neo-Nazi Richard Spencer was punched in the face in D.C. around uh, the oh, yeah. inauguration. Uh-huh. Yeah. And I was like, you know what? <laughs> That's the only way that Nazis were defeated in World War Two. Yeah, they were punched. They were killed. I mean, there was there was no let's sit across the table from you. Let's reason with you. Why did you vote this way? Why were you sympathetic to Hitler? (laughs) All right. Let's sit around. Let's talk about this a little bit more. It was you have to almost in many ways. And I know this is horrible. And my like 14 year old self cringes. (laughs) But they have to be gotten rid of. And I don't know how that happens. I, I think either put in jail. I mean, I don't know. I don't know how they are gotten rid of. I don't know what the means for that is, but I know it's not through reasoning and it's not through nonviolent communication. Mm. Mm. Yeah, um, yeah. 
And I'm deeply, deeply wrestling with this right now, especially after this weekend, where to me, it's very apparent, you know, that in this era, you know, law enforcement, I mean, the, the Charlottesville police just kind of sat by and watched these white supremacists march through the streets of Charlottesville. I mean, they literally yeah. stood there. Yeah. Um, and I was talking to someone about this last night and he was, you know, saying, let's give them the benefit of the doubt. They weren't prepared. And I was like, number one, <laughs> oh, this was their third rally in Charlottesville. Right. Number two, hundreds of white supremacists had gathered outside of St. Paul Memorial Episcopal Church on Friday night during the interfaith prayer gathering. Mm-hmm. So hundreds of them were out on Friday night, which should have let the police know, hey, there are going to be thousands of them here tomorrow morning. Um, <laughs> right. And so like, so law enforcement obviously are not on the side <laughs> of people who are oppressed. Um, so what does that mean? How, I mean, how are we supposed to go forward if there's no recourse? Okay, the Department of Justice is doing a civil rights investigation into uh, the white supremacists who murdered um, the counter-protester Saturday. But look at who's the head of yeah. <laughs> the Department of Justice, a neo-Confederate, <laughs> right. um, who's named after Confederate generals. Um, so when there's really, truly no recourse federally, on the state level, on the local level, we have to look to our individual and collective power outside of traditional structures of power. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The civil rights mo- movement was that. Um, the anti-lynching movement led by Ida B. Wells in the early 1900s and late 1800s was that. Where black people and other oppressed groups really looked to each other as our common strength as our common means of resistance. Um, I know Angela Davis in the 70s would talk about, you know, growing up in Birmingham in the 50s and 60s and her dad owning a gun, owning a shotgun. Yeah. Because of all of the church bombings and all of the Klan activity and all of the law enforcement activity. Um, My dad owns a pistol. There was a pistol (laughs) in our house at all times. Because he was black. He's black. Yeah, right. And you don't know who's going to come into your house and take your family away from you. Um, Because in many ways, our autonomy over our bodies Mm -hmm. has never been truly returned to us, even Mm. post-enslavement. Um. And so what do you do when your body doesn't even belong to you? Wow. How do you keep people from from plundering your body and plundering the body of your family and the people you love? I don't know. Yeah. But I know I'm not going to be reading Stanley Harawas <laughs> asking him to tell me how to do that. And I'm certainly not going to be reading any of his colleagues around pacifism or nonviolent resistance. Right. They don't have anything to tell me. Right. Wow. Absolutely. So I know that'll make people who went to Duke angry. <laughs> um, but some of them have been mad at me before. So <laughs> yes, sir. Yes, they'll sir. get over it. Oh, my gosh. That's uh, that is powerful, brother. That is. Yeah. I mean, and I think that's. um. I, you know, as after the uh, one of the guilds I go to that 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 I like, and it just you know, I, like you said, you know, it's nothing's perfect, and but it's but it's been a good guild. It's the American Academy of Religion, and so after the mm. uh, after the election, uh, it was this year it was in San Antonio, um, and uh, having been born myself in in Texas, I, I knew San Antonio well, so I was like, I want to go and and lament with with folks, and you know, these, these are folks that that I respect, and um, you know, are up on stage and have read their material, you know, and, you know, that, that was a question like, well, you know, what next, like what next? And folks just didn't necessarily have an answer. And I, 
it's just still felt in that kind of tension of yeah like what next i don't know you know i don't, I don't know it's like because and, and i feel this because you know those who know me know i'm you know i'm in an inter ethnic relationship uh my, you know my wife partner is uh you know she's white racially ethnically she's english and scottish and german um and i have sat and tarried with her mom um for the last 17 years talking about race and my experience and growing up particularly growing up in texas a small rural community of 1200 where i was the black person i was it and where did you grow up in texas in a place called menard texas right in like west texas ish okay yeah and so uh it yeah I'm I'm telling her my experience. We're talking about it. we're having great conversations. So I'm thinking, and I know she's conservative, but she votes for Trump. And wow, I don't take issue so much with the conservative value, but I did take issue with that because my daughter woke up the next day after the election and she's in tears because everything I've told her not to be is is now the leader, quote unquote, of this free country, and so. You know, what do you, do? what do you do with that and stuff? And so I don't, I don't know. And these are the things I would tell students, you know, white students. Oh, what do we do as white people? Oh, you know, love and Terry and all that stuff. And I'm like, man, I, yeah, love didn't conquer. Like you said, love, love didn't conquer the Nazis, you know, bullets did bombs did. And, so <laughs> <laughs> and you know, is, I mean, ethically, I mean, is that a form of love? <laughs> right. Um, <laughs> I don't know. Right. Um, I think, and, and I mean, the elephant in the room is that, you know, one of the premier Christian ethicists of the early 20th century, Dietrich Bonhoeffer really literally wrestled with this until the moment he died. Mm. And that actually literally caused his death and his martyrdom, um, was this ethical question of, do you just take it into your own hands to remove Hitler? Um, and he did, and that cost him his life. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I think that, that that brings up a great question. Um, and you know, and, and the thing is, I'm not I'm not poo pooing on Dr. King. You know, oh, I, yeah. I think oh, that yeah. I, I think that that his his views on that um, are much more radical than people often give him credit for. Um, because one of his areas of condemnation was the intense militarism of our country, which has only, you know, expanded since mm-hmm. his death. Mm-hmm. Um, and how, you know, how can you have smart bombs and dumb leaders? <laughs> um, there you go. And, and what do you do when you have nucle- nuclear warheads pointed um, at various countries kind of in a state of, of anticipation for war constantly. Um, and I think, you know, one insightful essay that I read, it's actually from 1982, Mm -hmm. uh, a denuclearization rally in San Francisco. That's kind of my interest sometimes, um, that was written by Alice Walker. Hmm. And what does she what does she call it? It's it's a great essay. I, I highly recommend it, but I can't even remember the name of it. It's in In Search of uh, Our Mother's Gardens. Um, let me find that real quick. Yeah, no, go for it. It's called um, Only Justice Can Stop a Curse, and basically. She wrestles very openly with wanting to see kind of white heteropatriarchal capitalism consume itself in war and destruction because of all of the evil that it's perpetuated on the lives of black people and women and so many other people. And not but, but and at the same time. She says, you know, life is better than death, Hmm. even if only because life has peaches. Wow. Which is something I really appreciate. Wow. That, you know, 
if only because life is less boring mm-hmm. and has peaches. And anyone who's ever had a South Carolina peach or a Georgia <laughs> peach knows what she means. That yes. this yes. is a gift. This is a sweet, sweet, deeply visceral gift in the middle of chaos mm-hmm. that makes life and order and beauty less boring than death and destruction and chaos. Wow. Um, So how do you live in the tension of wanting to see these people just destroy each other and themselves? And at the same time, having an appreciation for one of the most complex and beautiful gifts of life, which is a a Southern peach. And I think that that is our constant tension. Um, I don't think any of that has easy answers. Hmm. Um, um, But for Christians, it invites us into really into a life of prayer, a life of quietness, you know, meditation, contemplation. I mean, so much of this just isn't audible. It's not audible. I mean, really, my prayer life at this, I mean, I, I remember kind of the first 25 years of my life, which literally I'm only 27. So <laughs> up until like two years ago, prayer was all about what what do I say to God? What are the right words to say? Mm-hmm. And I think my prayer life has slowly evolved into I don't have anything to say. And that's OK. I can sit and listen um, and be quiet, uh, because so much of the suffering and the trauma and the struggle that I experience in the world is beyond words. Mm. And my approach to my prayer life shouldn't be any different. So much of my prayer life has become beyond words. There's nothing to say. There's only space and room to be. Wow. Wow. That's, uh, that's powerful. It's a good place to, uh, to pause on and and think and reflect, man. Brother Greer, thank you for, um, being on this, this podcast. This this was amazing. (laughs) (laughs) Of course, this is a joy. I, I enjoy, you know, I host a podcast and so I'm accustomed, you know, to having questions prepared and, um, being the one asking the questions. And so it's nice to, to be interrogated sometimes (laughs) and, you know, flesh out some stuff that I've been thinking about, but I don't necessarily have, you know, kind of the room or the space to, to flesh out. So thank you. No, no, absolutely. Absolutely. No, this is, this has been great. This has been, I'm going to be listening to this over myself. Um, Where can people find you where, uh, what's up next for you? Um, What's, 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 what's going on in, in the very near future for you? Um, so you can find me at broderickgreer.com. You can like me on Facebook as the Reverend Broderick Greer, or you can follow me on Twitter at Broderick Greer. Um, I'm not really working on anything right now. I hope to go on vacation in September. There you go. So maybe I can just work on relaxing and strengthening some relationships over vacation. I hear that. No, (laughs) (laughs) that's my priority right now. Yeah, no, that's what's up. That's what's up. Well, thank you so much for coming on. And for those of you listening, um, what are your thoughts? What are your thoughts on a theology of violence? What are your thoughts on Virginia? What are your thoughts on Trump? Subscribe, listen, comment. And thank you so much. And send those to Daniel, not me. (laughs) That's right. That's right. I've seen some of your things on Twitter, man. As I'm saying, you're not going to respond anymore to, to ignorance. <laughs> if you haven't done the reading, I don't. We can't talk. <laughs> That's right. I'm going to have to just play that clip for my my undergrads this this coming year. <laughs> just put that up in the first day of class. Exactly. Oh mercy. Well, thank you so much, brother. Of course. Thank you. Wow. 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 What did I tell you? What did I tell you? That brother's deep, ain't he? Hoo-wee, hoo-wee. 
Yes, um, yes, um. Well, look, I know we're kind of at the time limit now. This, I, hey, when Reverend Greer is talking, you just can't, <laughs> you just can't cut that brother off. You, you gotta, you gotta go with it. So, um, you know, this one's gonna be a little longer, but that's okay because you got some, some diamonds in there. Some not even diamonds in the rough. These are curated and pulled out and everything. Um, thank you guys so much for listening to the show again. Once again, if you love this show, if you like it, and you're just getting into it. Go on iTunes, rate us, give us a good rating, you know, put some comments down. Uh, we're at whitehodgepodcasts.com and um, you can subscribe there. You can subscribe on iTunes. You can subscribe on Google, uh, wherever you find your podcast at. We're also on Facebook under White Hodge Podcasts. Um, Profane Faith is listed on that site as well as as well as a couple of other podcasts I do. Um, but the main feature is, is Profane Faith. So go there, drop us a line. We'd love to hear what you guys think as well uh, in this this um like i said i am hopeful that broderick greer will come back on the show and uh, grace us with again his wisdom and his knowledge i'm so thankful for the work he's doing out in memphis and uh we certainly look forward to uh the upcoming future with him because there is so much so much that is going on and we're thankful for him thanks so much for listening i'm daniel white hodge peace